It's Joe Bunting here. I'm teaching a free workshop this week only about novel ideas. In the training, you'll learn how to know if your idea is good with one test, how to make your idea better with the three core components every novel must have, how people ruin their books by missing this one thing, and how a novel plan will make you 52% more likely to finish your book. You can sign up for the free training at therightpractice.com slash workshop. Again, go to therightpractice.com slash workshop for a free novel idea training. It'll only be around for a week though, so sign up now. I'm here to be a catalyst for awe. You are a character in your life. So what kind of story are you telling? Is it any good? Or is it kind of boring? Let's put it to the test. This is Character Test with Joe Bunting. Welcome to Character Test, my podcast about the characters we love and hate in the books we read, the films we watch, and the lives we lead. My name is Joe Bunting, and I'm a best-selling author and the founder of The Right Practice. And I'm Alice Sudlow. I'm the editor-in-chief of The Right Practice and a StoryGrid editor. So if you've never listened to this podcast before, here's how it works. We're going to start by putting a character to the test. Alice and I will look at a character in a book we're reading or a film we're watching and ask, is this actually a good character? And also, what can we learn from that character? Which character are we talking about today, Alice? We're talking about Bilbo Baggins from J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. And after that, we're going to be talking to Derek Murphy. Derek is a novelist, a creativity guru, and the author of 15 books, including the novel Shearwater and the guide Gorilla Publishing. I've known Derek for years, and one of the things I love about talking to him is that he's always in a new, amazing place in the world. When I reached out to him about doing this interview, he was in Scotland, on the interview, he was in Amsterdam. Later this month, he's going to be at a castle in France hosting a writing retreat, which is crazy. As someone who loves to travel, he's really inspiring. In the interview, we'll talk a lot about the tension between art, passion, the things that make writers and artists excited about sharing their work, and the craft of the work, the work that it takes to make that art and also to make a living off of that art and passion. Derek has a fascinating journey and a lot of insight into creativity that I know is going to be interesting to anyone, whether you're a writer or not. And then the last part of our show is our character study, where we ask what we can learn in our own lives as we try to live a better story. Thanks for listening to the Character Test Show. We have a free prize for everyone who listens to this episode. I'm not going to tell you what it is, so you'll have to find out for yourself. You can get it at charactertestshow.com slash episode six. Again, go to charactertestshow.com slash episode six to get a free prize related to this episode. All right, Alice, let's talk about Bilbo. This was a character suggestion from a friend, right? 
Yes, this was our first listener-submitted character. Lily in the Shadows sent us Bilbo on Instagram, and if you have a character you'd like us to test, you can tag Joe on Instagram at jhbunting, or use the hashtag charactertestshow, or you can email us at charactertestshow at gmail.com. We would love to hear your suggestions. So if you're somehow not familiar with The Hobbit, it's been like 60, 70 years I think that if there's any book that is outside of the spoiler realm, The Hobbit is pretty far outside of the spoiler realm at this point. You never know. We'll still probably get angry emails from people. True. For spoilers. If you're planning on sending us an angry email, instead I would recommend that you skip ahead. (laughs) So if you're somehow not familiar with The Hobbit, here is the premise. The story really starts when this old man who happens to be a wizard, his name is Gandalf, shows up at the door of this very comfortable hobbit named Bilbo Baggins. Bilbo kind of has it all. He has a great house. He has all the delicious food he could want. He has a lot of friends. But Gandalf invites him on a quest with a bunch of dwarves to steal a dragon's treasure from the ruins of an ancient dwarven kingdom. And he says no. Bilbo's like, "Uh uh-uh, not doing it. And then he says, yes, otherwise it would be a very short book. It would be. And he decides to go on this quest and really be the dwarves thief as they steal this treasure from the dragon. The group runs into a lot of trouble on the road to the dragon's lair, even more trouble when they finally get to the dragon, then even more trouble after they deal with the dragon. It's a fun story. Tolkien really set the rules that a lot of authors in the fantasy realm are still using today. And he, of course, was really inspired by Beowulf, an old English story, and a Renaissance writer named Edmund Spencer, who wrote The Fairy Queen. So it's a really fun book and very whimsical. He actually wrote it for his three sons originally. He didn't even mean to publish it. He just wrote it for his kids, which I love. All right. Should we put Bilbo to the test? Let's put him to the test. All right, we're going to start with the decisions that Bilbo makes or doesn't make in three specific parts of the book. So the first decision that Bilbo makes is when he decides not to go on the quest. Yeah, that's really true. So he actually refuses to go on the quest at the beginning when Gandalf asks him. And then he decides to eventually go on the quest. He like realizes that he needs some adventure in his life for whatever reason. And he decides to follow along with the dwarves and join their group. And that refusal of the call is a piece of the hero's journey. It's a piece of storytelling in all kinds of stories that when we're faced with the opportunity to do something big and exciting and also scary and out of our realm of experience, a lot of times the first answer is no. So I really love that that's his first answer and that the story doesn't stop there because it'd be very short. It would be very short. And I I do think it's important that he refuses to go at the beginning because it really sets the stakes of the quest. It makes it show that like this is actually costing him something and deciding to do this, you know, is a big thing. And otherwise, if you don't set the stakes at the beginning, then the rest of the adventure is not as exciting. It's not. It feels easy, almost throwaway. Like, of course, it's going to be fine. He's excited for it. It's going to be good. When there's a no at the start, then the stakes are much higher. Yep. All right. So then the second decision or the second 
area four decisions is the middle. And you had some thoughts about how many decisions he does or doesn't make in that section. Yeah. So I think, I mean, I love the book. I read it a couple times. And I think the middle can sag a little bit because he doesn't make a lot of decisions in the middle. He's kind of going along with this group of dwarves and they are making decisions and he's sort of following along. And and the moments where he does make decisions or when he's on his own, you know, in a forest with a bunch of spiders or, you know, other parts, that's really exciting. But he can kind of go along with it a little bit too much in the middle. Yeah. I think that it's a challenge of quest stories, of stories where you have a long journey and you know that the beginning is an exciting spark and you know that the end is going to be an impressive conflict. And somehow in the middle, you have to get your character from the beginning to the end without just dropping them there. And it can be challenging to find ways to keep up that interest, to keep up the decision-making processes throughout that whole section. But at the same time, that's a time when I think that characters go through a process of transformation that prepares them in a way for the final events that they wouldn't be prepared if they didn't have that experience. So we're going to talk about the goal for Bilbo in a minute, but I would almost argue that his goal shifts a little bit over the course of that middle, that he becomes a little bit more excited for or like buying into the ultimate goal at the end. So as for the third area where he makes decisions, the end of the story, this big climactic end of the journey, what kinds of decisions does he make there and how are those really powerful? Yeah, at the end of the story, he makes this really important decision, I think, where he finds this piece of treasure that belongs to the leader of the dwarves called the Arkenstone, I think. Hopefully I'm not saying that wrong, which would be very embarrassing if I was saying that wrong. (laughs) And he finds this treasure and instead of giving it to the dwarves, he hides it. And then when the humans and the elves want the dwarves to pay them some money to rebuild kind of this, you know, their town there, there was a lot of damage by the dragon. The dwarves refuse. And then, you know, there's this moment where it looks like everyone that we like is going to get into a big fight. And Bilbo pulls out this treasure, the Arkenstone, and essentially betrays the dwarves for the greater good to end this conflict. He says, hey, if I'll give you this back if you decide not to go to war. And the dwarves are really offended by that. They banish him. So his, I mean, he betrays the dwarves and then the dwarves really reject him. And it's this kind of moment of courage where he's putting the greater good over the good of his friends and even of himself. Yeah, I think that a huge piece of characterization is understanding what a character values. And going back to one of our previous episodes, Sean Coyne kind of talked about values that we as individuals hold in our own lives too, and how that shapes the decisions that we make. And 
Bilbo there has to choose between this value of the greater good versus the value of his friendships versus the value of himself and his own personal inclusion or having the resources and the support that he needs. So, and all of those are good values, but they're incompatible together in that moment. And so it's a tough decision to weigh that and make sacrificial choices for a value that is really good, but really hard to maintain. Yeah. And I think it's really what sets this book and Bilbo apart from a lot of other kind of prototypical fantasy novels. And not that I have anything against fantasy novels. I love fantasy novels, but you know, that choice that he makes, it's not just like, do they get the treasure at the end? Do they complete their quest? There's also this extra part where he has to make a really tough kind of ethical decision. And, and, you know, J.R.R. Tolkien was really interested in ethics and philosophy, and it's almost this philosophical choice and, and kind of bigger choice that I think is challenging and it's not easy and it makes me admire Bilbo. Absolutely. So those are his three areas of decision-making. All of those decisions are kind of influenced by his goals, I would say. Like, I think that's how characters make decisions. So let's talk for a minute about his goals. I had some thoughts about his goals and you can agree with me or refute my suggestions. I think that at the beginning, especially at that point when he says no and that kind of grappling with that question of yes or no, his goal is kind of to return to stasis. He's got a comfortable life and he doesn't want to be disrupted. And then in my memory, he wants to go on this quest, but also like come back and come back soon and come back to his comfortable life and come back in one piece. And so this kind of return to stasis, this return to his comfortable life is that initial goal. But I think also somewhere along that way, that goal shifts. And so by the end, he's really bought into this quest that wasn't initially super personal to him, but that buy-in by the end is what enables him to make a self-sacrificial decision for the greater good. Do Would you agree with that assessment of his goals? I would not disagree one bit. Perfect. Flawless. That's what I love to hear. Well, in that case, what about obstacles? What's preventing him from achieving those goals? Yeah, I mean, I think there are so many obstacles. First is just the journey. There's a bunch of distance in between, you know, his hobbit hole and the dragon's lair. They have to go through this horrible forest. Then there are some goblins, some trolls, other horrible things. Eventually, they have to fight a dragon. And then that, you know, like we were talking about earlier, the people themselves, his friends themselves become obstacles where, you know, his friends who are on the human side and his friends on the elf side are teaming up against the dwarves, his other friends, and it becomes very messy. And then fortunately for everyone, I think there's a bigger enemy that comes along and they all have to group together. But yeah, I think there are a lot of obstacles to his stasis. And there's also obstacles to his friendships. For sure. Yeah. And I think that is really what's interesting about the book. Yeah. Then our last question. Do we like Bilbo? You mean is... Bilbo empathizable. I was not going to use that word. (laughs) I was 
looking up the definition of empathetic after we last recorded to find out what is the correct word to use in that situation. And certain sources were like, there is no word for this because a character cannot create empathy on their own. That's something that we have to bring ourselves. But I think it's an empathetic character, a character that we can empathize with. There's no word for it yet. That's what I heard. No, you are taking the wrong takeaway from this. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yes, I think we can empathize with Bilbo because, you know, if we're being honest, the idea of, you know, breaking our normal routine and going on a quest is uncomfortable. Yes. And walking a long distance, sleeping outside on the side of a road. Like that doesn't sound like a fun thing to most of us. Maybe you're an adventurer or really like being outside. Don't look at me because I am not and I don't. (laughs) (laughs) But if we're being honest, I think that isn't a fun thing. So we can empathize with Bilbo's unwillingness and his desire to be comfortable. And also kind of the panache he brings to it, like the humor and I don't know, he's just like a fun, likable person, even in his curmudgeonness isn't quite the right word, but like he likes to be comfortable. Yeah. He's settled. He's in his middle age and he's he's settled. And I also think that he is just a little bit of an outsider in this group. He's the one hobbit in the midst of a group of dwarves. So he's the one person who doesn't have quite the same background and experience as this group that he's traveling with. But over the course of their travels, they become really good friends and they build really strong relationships and they have this understanding of this shared experience, this journey they've shared together. And so he goes from this slight outsiderness to being very much a part of a group. And that, I think, is a powerful thing to empathize with as well, is being part of a group. And what really struck me about the book, the the part of the book that really hit me was the part where he goes home at the end and he leaves this group and he goes back to the stasis that was his goal to return to from the beginning. But there's something that's not 100% perfectly satisfying about that because even as he's getting to go home, he's getting to return to everything that he wanted. He's also leaving this group of people. He's leaving this experience and he's leaving the only people really who understand this specific journey that he's been on. And he goes back to his family and friends and they'll never quite get it. He can tell stories, but they'll never quite understand. And I think that's really powerful. And that's what really struck me about the story. Yeah. And I think it's also relatable. I mean, Tolkien was really influenced by World War I, the Great War in Europe, and the experience of veterans coming back and being different and not being able to fully relate to the people at home. And I think we see that in Bilbo. And then again in Frodo later on in The Lord of the Rings, but I think he was really interested in that kind of feeling of being you know, with people, but being different and having a different experience that sets you apart. And I think, you know, regardless of whether we're veterans or not, it's still relatable for our own experience. Yeah. We all have things that not everyone has shared with us alongside of us. Totally. So that is our character test. Let's get right into our interview with Derek Murphy. But if you have a suggestion for a character, we want to hear it. Again, you can tag me on Instagram at J.H. 
bunting, or use the hashtag character test show, or you can email us character test show at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. All right, let's get into our interview. All right, so I'm here with Derek Murphy, also known as DS Murphy, writes under his fiction pen name. So thanks so much for joining us, Derek. Yes, it's fun to see you face to face. We haven't seen each other in person for a few years. Way too long. It's exciting to kind of talk about travel and art and everything with you. Yeah, so you're in Amsterdam right now. And for mm-hmm. people who are just listening, I'm looking at behind you are two really interesting pieces of art. One looks like, who's that guy, Rembrandt? It kind of looks like a Rembrandt. And then on your other side is just a poster of a guy with very nicely coiffed hair. And there's a bunch of other art behind you, which is so cool. It's a, it's small. It's an apartment, but right on the canal in Amsterdam that I'm enjoying. It's pretty beautiful just to kind of walk around and soak up the scenery and then come back and stay up all night writing which is what I've been doing lately. That's awesome. But it's nice. We were in uh, Edinburgh for a conference before this and we're in France after this. So we're moving around a little bit, but I'm trying to keep focus on, you know, getting the words down and finishing projects. Wow. That's amazing. I mean, I think that's a lot of writer's dream to be able to travel and live in all these amazing places that you are getting to live in and write at the same time. Do you have a place that you call home or do you are you just always traveling? We haven't had a home base for about five years. My wife's from Taiwan. I'm from Oregon. So we tend to go back and forth between those two. But the funny thing about travel is once, you, once you've been doing it for a while, it's kind of hard to stop. So for us, like we don't have any possessions. We're kind of migratory. We, we have three big suitcases we travel around. So at this point to decide to stop that lifestyle and actually, you know, sign a one-year lease, get the right visas and paperwork, it's, we'd probably like to do it pretty soon, but finding that right base that's perfect for the both of us is difficult. It's just been easier kind of to keep moving. Wow. That's crazy. Where did you, you grew up in Oregon. Where in Oregon? Near Portland. Tigered, Oregon. Okay, what was it like? Um, I did a lot of summer camping, and I worked at summer camp as a well as a scout, as a Boy Scout, and then eventually as kind of a staffer, and then oh. the administration. So, like three months out of the year, I was deep in Oregon forests, leading like hikes and stuff. So I love that. I love that culture, but I'm also I'm a less adventurousy or outdoorsy as I used to be, and my wife's not really into camping, so we tend to stay in nice sterile environments (laughs) or beautiful european cities yeah i'm happy with europe just because you know there's a certain standard it's clean it's pretty taiwan has like and and other countries in asia there's a lot of things i like but it's always a little bit stressful to to go out or walk around because they don't really have sidewalks and the traffic is really crazy so there i mean you stay somewhere even for a month or two the environment that you're in affects your mood. Kind of easy to alter your mood or be more productive if you choose to put yourself in the right environment. And for me, even just the change of being somewhere new every month, I think keeps me a little bit uh, energized. Yeah, I, I have done a little bit of that, not as much as you, but I spent a year traveling in my early 20s. And then my family and I have spent several summers in France. And one 
period in particular. It wasn't actually the summer. It was in the early spring, like the end of winter. We were in Paris and staying at this tiny little apartment, which we couldn't really afford. And it was raining all the time and cold. And we had a 10-month-old. And and one of the things about like babies in France is that they're obsessed with warmth and making sure that they're very warm. And we would go to the park with our son who wouldn't keep his socks on. He would just like throw his socks on off and it would be like, you know, 50 degrees out and we'd be pushing him in a stroller and the moms who were pushing their kids in sleeping bags, literal sleeping bags with their babies in the stroller and they would be horrified at us because we didn't have the sleeping bag that probably was 200 euro or whatever. And our son had no socks on because you would throw them off. (laughs) But I remember just feeling very kind of depressed. And, you know, to your point about place and the effect it has on us, felt, you know, very kind of isolated, depressed. It was hard to create that month. So for you, like how, how does the location that you're in affect your creativity and and especially the writing that you're doing right now, you're focusing a lot on writing fiction and nonfiction and everything, you know? So what effect does that have on your creativity? That's a really good question. I'm not sure how to answer. I tend to stay up really late, so I don't even see daytime all the time. Sometimes I'll go out. Usually I'll get up like before sundown, I'll take a stroll in the afternoon. So having the ability to go outside and be inspired and see beautiful things it's a luxury because it doesn't exist in a lot of places. Even like if we're downtown Portland, I find cities kind of dreary. So even if it's a really nice city with big, tall steel buildings and things, I, you know, it doesn't have that uplifting effect when you walk around. It's not aesthetically pleasing. So somewhere like Amsterdam, where it's it's a beautiful yeah. city, like it's everything is pretty. So it's just nice to wander around. I think it does have quite a big effect. Traveling so much isn't really great we should slow down a little bit because we lose days every Mm. month, you know, packing everything up and then moving again. But I try to find, even like we're renting a castle in France in a few weeks. And the reason it's not good business, except I know I'm going to get so much done in those three weeks because I'll be surrounded with a community of, of other writers. And there's a great effect of just being in a room together producing. Um, But also it's just going to be, you know, it's, it's ancient ruins and pine trees in the middle of France, in the middle of nowhere, that is just like you wake up to that view. That's out your window. That's like your front porch. It's with like four castles. And it, it's just kind of incredible to have that kind of experience. So even if I don't get I mean, I write young adult fantasy mostly. So every trip in a castle is like research for my novel, for potential novel, which is nice. So I'm kind of, you know, I'm harnessing the experiences that I want to put in fiction and doing it a little bit deliberately by kind of seeking out those kind of adventures if I know kind of where I want to take a book. Wow. That sounds just about the most idealistically romantic thing I've ever heard. (laughs) It sounds amazing. So for you, are you inspired by nature? Like when you, I mean, you mentioned that you were a Boy Scout and I was a Boy Scout too, by the way. I, I topped out at a Star Scout. So I didn't like go all the way. Did did you make it to Eagle Scout? I did. I had to be pushed. It was kind of the same. I'm a procrastinator. So even like 
with my PhD thesis that took me seven years or a decade or something, I almost didn't finish the last two or three years. I was barely working on it because I didn't like the requirements. So I was kind of rebelling. But it was only the deadline. Like you have to, if you don't finish this year, then all your credits are void and all the work you've put in is lost. It was a really harsh, like a harsh deadline. So I managed to overcome the final hurdles and turn in the paperwork. My Eagle Scout project was the same way. I was almost 18. I wasn't really motivated to get it done, but I had, you know, once you're in the community, a lot of people help you through it, but it was mostly the fear of the deadline that kind of pushed me to get my ducks in order, which is actually something I'm struggling with, with fiction mm -hmm. writing, because if you're not, like, it's not exactly a job until you're making money. So it's kind of a hobby. You don't know if people are going to like it or if you're going to make money with it. So it can feel like you're putting a lot of time and effort into something that nobody's ever going to read or yeah. isn't going to be worth the investment. It's a fear people have. So when I don't have to worry about the income because it's not really a job and I have nothing but time, it's actually been difficult to self-motivate myself. Like I know I, in a couple hours a day, I could write 2,000 words a day. I could get you know a novel done every two or three months. But last year when I basically took a year off, I only managed two or three books, you know, so I wasn't like, I wasn't even doing the bare. It sounds like you were really slacking that you only finished two or three books. I mean, Derek, that's embarrassing. I don't even know if we should air this because it's so embarrassing. You only finished two or three novels. It depends novels. how much <laughs> on the audience that you're in. Because of course, you know, it would be great to write a novel a year, which is fast for most people. And a lot of traditionally published authors, they, they publish a novel a year and that, that's fine. That's their career. But most authors won't make a living with their writing. Even if they get a traditional published deal, it's really not that much money for the time writing a book. So, but yeah, I, with the indie community, there's such a rush to publish. It's not necessarily, I don't think it's a problem with I like I I don't I don't believe that if you put more time into mm. a book it's going to be a, a higher quality mm. book. I think that's a little bit of prejudice because I know I have friends who write very quickly. They they write first rough draft that's just good on the first time. They're they're instinctive writers. So for them it's possible. I'm a slower writer. I plot, I edit really hard. Doesn't necessarily mean I have a better book. That's just the way that I that I process. But I think even if I was working on it full time, it's better to, you know, put in a couple hours a day and write it consistently mm -hmm. and get it done in two or three months rather than, you know, write it in an hour or two on the weekends over a period of 10 years. And then it turns into this mess that you'll never really get clarified. I think it can be really effective to write a good book quickly. For me, you know, two or three a year is, is fine. But if I, I also know that I could write like there's no difference between a six month novel and a one month novel. You just do the same amount of work in a shorter yeah. period of time. And if this is my job and that's the only thing I want to be doing, I have to figure out how to use more of my time well. Otherwise I like I work an hour a day and then, you know, I just don't do anything. So, you know, if I if I'm really serious, I wanna be trying to boost my production, but I also wanna focus on high quality sure. books. So you grew up in Oregon, you were in the Boy Scouts exploring the woods. Did back then? 
did you want to be a writer? Like, was that something that you were kind of thinking about as a kid? Like, when I grow up, I'm going to be a writer? Or did it come to you kind of later in life? I think I wanted to be a writer earlier, but then I got into art and painting in high school. So for like 10 years, I was a starving artist and trying to do, you know, the fine art stuff. And one of my big challenges... Were you focusing on painting or... Surrealist oil paintings that were really weird. And I was a pure hardcore artist for many years. So one of my big turning points in my life was probably, I was really trying to sell and trying to sell in galleries. And we had a connection with a meeting with someone who had a big clientele. And I was excited to get this meeting so she could help me sell my like really weird, surreal stuff that nobody really got. And I think I mentioned this earlier, my main problem was I, I had the Magritte philosophy of art where you shouldn't put yourself between the viewer and the yeah. artist. Like the artist shouldn't be part of the equation. It should all be about the reception and the response. So I didn't want to tell people. And that's, that's Magritte, the painter, the French painter, right? Who is he the one that has the apples in front of faces? And he said something like, real art is a mystery and it's unknowable. So I don't mm-hmm. you know, tell people what my paintings mean. So I was trying to do that. I just wouldn't explain what the paintings meant. And I wouldn't tell them my story. For, for many, many years, I tried to keep my story out of it and just let it be about you know, the art. But I realized, well, then I realized I was making a mistake. And more recently, I've been fo- more focused on like, there's how people respond to your art. And then... There's also the story that you tell and that can like how people feel about you as the artist can be a very powerful thing. That's a little bit hard to quantify, but I've been more focused on like sharing my story because I think that's a mistake that I made in my art. But I had this interview with this gallery owner and she was like, I would love it if you didn't paint these surrealist things. You should really paint these droopy, colorful, like balloon stuff that sells really well. That's just like this other guy was painting. And of course, I was horrified. I was like, no way. She doesn't get my art. She doesn't get me. But that's when I was a starving artist. And one of the things I learned as a starving artist was it's fine to make Mm. art that people like. And it doesn't mean that you're selling out. It doesn't mean that it's not good quality work. I think real art matters to people. Real art has an impact on people. And you can make that kind of real art easier if you know your audience and you know what they like, you know how to kind of pull their heartstrings a little bit by defining your audience and by making art for other people a little bit more as a service by focusing on the value you're providing. That's the same as business. So of course, the artists who do that intentionally and the writers who do that intentionally will do better business as well. They're, They're finding their audience, they're giving them what they want. So, But there's this big controversy in the publishing world where a lot of writers still feel that They shouldn't think about the market or the audience. They should completely do their passion. But then they're after they publish, they're like, I need marketing. I'm going to spend a bunch of money on marketing because they didn't write the book. They didn't know their audience well enough to write the book that the audience would recognize. Um, I think if you write the book with intrinsic benefits and value and position it and package it in the right way to the right audience, it should just like they should get it. It should sell. But that's all like the publishing phase. And I think a lot of writers, by focusing a little too much on the art and resisting the, the story and, and the audience, they're doing themselves a disfavor and their audience a disfavor because I think you can find an intersection between what 
you enjoy and also mm. what other people will enjoy. Anyway, that was my realization as a failed artist and going from, I think, you know, what do I want to make and what can I make that people will enjoy? Now, that's really interesting. Did you have that realization all at once? Like, did you leave that meeting with that gallery owner and think, oh, I can't wait to go paint balloon animals like Jeff Koons or whatever and make a ton of money at my art or and and, and paint stuff that people would enjoy and genuinely get true you know, a great experience from, or, or did that take a while? Like how long, how, how long did it take to have that kind of realization that you wanted to change your focus as an artist? It took a couple of years and it was kind of a good illustration of the process because I resisted it for a long time, but my art wasn't selling partly because I didn't tell people what it meant. Um, I had an exhibition where people would come up to me and they're like, I want to buy it. How much is it? And I didn't have the answer. I didn't have, I wasn't hired for actual sales. I was really bad at business. So I've been struggling to overcome that and get better at visibility. I get a lot of visibility, but I don't really sell as well as I would like to. But so I was a failed artist, basically couldn't sell my art. And I pivoted a little bit. I started doing book cover design for writers because I knew about self-publishing and I knew design. And I wasn't great at the beginning. I didn't charge very much, but I spent five or 10 years as a book designer. And then I a book editor. And then there's so many things authors need help with that I became good at. I started offering all these services. So that was fine for, for many years. It was easy to make money as like when you provide a service that people need, it's so much easier to make money. So all my books were like book marketing, book design, how to publish, how to market your books, because people wanted those yeah. things. They wanted to hear from me about those things. It's not what I'm passionate about. So I never really enjoyed making that money, even though I've kind of built a name for myself in that arena. I'm much more, now that I've kind of built a platform and now that I know what I'm doing, I'm really excited about shifting what I'm known for mm -hmm. a little bit away from publishing and author services into like deep research on creativity mm -hmm. and literature, because that's what I enjoy. That's what I like writing about. I have a platform now, so I can afford to do that because I, I know how to position it and sell it. But also I know about, it's a more general topic and it, I'll know how to market it with ads. It's taken me a long time to kind of build the skills that I needed to reach this point. But now I'm pretty excited wow. about being able to use the, to develop my own products instead of just helping other people with their products. Mm. Yeah. I remember when I first met you, we were at a conference in Portland and we had kind of talked a little bit beforehand and then I was sitting with a friend having a drink at this restaurant and you walked over and sat down and it was awesome. And we talked about what you were working on and you were trying to kind of get out of your service work, which was your main focus at the time and move into writing more fiction. And, you know, I think about that tension between what you're talking about, you know, the craft of your work, which is messy. And I'm in that world too. And there is, you know, Facebook ads and Amazon ads. And how do you like crank out enough words every day? And uh, how do you network and get on podcasts? How do you do your own podcast? Like there's so much to this work of being a writer, being a creative, being any kind of artist, I think. 
But then there's this like core passion behind your work and that thing that you wake up in the morning and really the reason like why you got into this in the first place. And it's really hard to manage that tension. And, you know, we have to make a living. We have to do what we need to support ourselves and our family. And yet there's this thing that's calling us to our art. I mean, do you feel that tension all the time? How do you find your place in the tension between your passion and your art and, you know, the craft side, the commerce side of your work? It was really tricky in the beginning, I think, because I was terrified of writing a novel. I'd been talking about publishing and stuff for a long time. I was really comfortable with nonfiction stuff because it's just like blogging, but I wanted to move into fiction. That was very difficult because I felt like, I don't know, I I already had a bit of a reputation. I actually advise people to just publish something you don't care about first, maybe with a pen name, just to kind of get over the hurdle and get it out there because most authors will spend far too much effort and time on the first book that they love that nobody else is really interested in. So it can be really useful to just put something out without, you know, the the fear and the terror and overanalyzing everything and spending too much time polishing it. But in my case, I already kind of had a platform. I wanted them to be good books. I, I didn't want to have crappy fiction books out there. It was still hard for me to get started. I had to really study plotting. And I didn't really get ahead with fiction until I figured out there's like the classic Hero's Journey by Joseph Campbell and a million variations of that. But there was always something a little weird with the ending that I couldn't resolve. So what I first started to do was just get to the midpoint. I'd tell a story, like I'd map it out and I'd get to the midpoint and then i published them just to say like, you know, do you like it so far? Because I figured if they're not gonna be able to read past the first half, if they don't wanna keep reading, it doesn't matter how the book ends. Um, and I got really good at starting books and it was a little bit weird and I got some negative reviews because, you know, it wasn't a finished story. Although that's actually becoming more common to kind of publish serials like that. But I was able to feel comfortable putting out an unfinished product, basically. I didn't know how it was going to end satisfactorily, but I put it out as a half novel. I think I did five of those. And then later I went back and figured out the ending and wrote five endings to those books. Now, I'm not selling a lot of fiction because now I just have a whole bunch of book ones. I've been like testing every genre and figuring things out. For me, it really helps to have a plot and to know where I'm going. I can sit down with, I like to use like my iPhone and a Bluetooth keyboard because it's a less of a distraction. And as long as I know like what's going to happen in the next scene, then I can get through the words. But even if I know how to do it, even though I know how to write good books, the problem for me has just been doing it every day and sitting down and getting the work done. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, the work is hard. (laughs) So you studied painting and you, I think, lived in Malta, right? Uh, You studied abroad Mm -hmm. in Malta. What was it like living in Malta in Europe and studying painting, you know, as a young, I mean, you were, what, 18 years old out on your own for your first time? Like, what was it like kind of coming of age like that? It was like 20 years ago. So it was just like we didn't really have cell phones. There was internet on campus in Malta, but it was kind of a different world when you like you didn't have the connectivity. You could actually be immersed in the culture. I used to learn languages a lot faster. Now, like even when I live, you know, anywhere, it's all English. 
transition online stuff all the time. So I don't really get the chance to make relationships as well as I would like to or practice the language as much as I would like. Now you can just like Google voice translate everything and it, it makes you a little bit lazy. And there's a huge value in going somewhere difficult where everything is hard and you don't understand what's going on. It's, it's frustrating. Was that what it was like for you? Was it hard? In most of they speak English with a strong accent and it's beautiful and I, I love my classes. So it, it was fine. Taiwan was harder because a lot of my classes weren't in English and I had to figure out literary theory and philosophy and stuff in Chinese, which I'm not at that level. Yeah. Did you go straight from Malta to Taiwan? Like I know you did your PhD in Taiwan. Was that like, or, or was there a middle period when you were doing your art? In Malta, I studied philosophy and art history. Then I studied painting in Florence. And I basically moved to Taiwan. I, I went to get a like little TESOL certificate to teach English in Barcelona. And then I went to Taiwan basically to be a, a painter. Like Taiwan was pretty cheap. I could teach English. I had more time to work. I rented out a big house with a huge like attic studio. And I, I was working on these massive canvases. I did that for, for years, just teach, you know, teaching English and, and doing my art. But like I said, it was really frustrating to try to focus on these big trade fairs and gallery showings. And it's a lot of time and effort and work and you're not seeing a return. So, and I, like I hated teaching English. So I wanted to start doing something else. I got into all this online stuff. It was, I had a scholarship to study for most of my PhD because Taiwan has a really generous stipend program. So I kind of got to go to like get paid to go to school and be in the library all day and read books and also kind of think about business and brand and what I want to do with my life. So I think that was a great opportunity for me. And the other really big shifting point, when I finished my PhD, I was still doing book cover design. I didn't love it. I thought about getting a nice, secure university teaching job in the academy system. So I went to a job interview and at this job interview, which I thought I kind of had an in and I had a friend on the inside, but I was kind of attacked because they had found a really early book that I had self-published, a really ugly book. I had like painted the cover, the title was bad, but they had a copy of this thing that I had put out in the world. And once you self-publish a book, it's kind of out there forever. And since then, I have learned so much about, you know, publishing and marketing, but it wasn't a great book. And they kind of laughed at me like, you think you can teach at this school, but you have this crappy, you know, self-published, unedited book out there. It was a little bit like that, that oh they were kind gosh. of antagonistic towards me. So that was kind of my awakening call that I never wanted to beg for a job again. I never wanted to, you know, go to a job interview and be interrogated and sweat through that and have that discomfort. So I focused a lot more on, you know, getting my online services businesses up, starting to generate my own income. So was that in Taiwan? That was in Taiwan. At a university in Taiwan? Mm-hmm. Were the people doing that, were they Taiwanese or were they American or British? They were Taiwanese, but in the Taiwanese literary community, the people who go to the best schools and go to like, they study literature, which isn't really a high profit thing to study, you know, they probably come from wealthy westernized families a little bit. So they their English is very good. They're tend to be a little more conservative. Anyway, so it's kind of a whole subculture. Interesting. Now, 
how did it feel when they like brought out your book and put it on the table and you're like, okay, that is not my best work, but it's also kind of creepy that you're bringing this out during our interview. Like, what did that feel like when you saw it? Yeah, I was surprised. And I, I think I do good work. Like, I'm not ashamed yeah. of that book's content, but I did the packaging, positioning, and branding all wrong. So it was more controversial than it needed to be. And so just, like, there were a lot of reasons. And the, the main thing was, like, people were passing on my book before they read the book. Like if they read the book, it wasn't bad, but people were judging it from the cover, from, from positioning, from everything I did. I was telling the wrong story about myself and about the book, and that's not the story I want to tell anymore. So I've tried to distance myself from that earlier work. That's so interesting. But it was, you know, yeah, it's, it's, and it's also embarrassing because those early covers, like those were the ones I worked yeah. so hard on. I agonized over all the details. I learned Photoshop. And I actually teach people how to design their own covers because I think authors should have the freedom to do things by themselves if they want to, to have more control over the publishing. But they usually make really crappy covers. You have to really know what you're doing. And the cover is the most yeah. important part to get right. You know, it's, it's not just does it look good. Is it telling the right readers enough of the benefits or the attraction? Like, is it working or not? And a lot of authors like... Now I'll just like, even though I'm a cover designer, I'll just buy a pre-made cover if I see one that's good because I know that cover will sell any story and I can write the story later. And it saves me, you know, a dozen hours to working on in Photoshop, playing around with stuff. This episode is brought to you by The Right Practice Pro. The Right Practice Pro is an amazing community of creative writers where you can post your writing, get feedback on it, and figure out how to turn your writing into beautiful, award-winning books, short stories, or novels. I personally post my own writing to this community to get feedback. And if you have any interest in becoming a published, award-winning writer, you should too. The Write Practice Pro is for anyone writing a book, novel, short story, or poem, or anyone who just wants to improve their creative writing. If you want to become a better writer, getting good feedback is something you must invest in. And the Right Practice Pro is the best place to get it. You can sign up for the Right Practice Pro at therightpractice.com slash join. It reminds me of this first cover that I did for a free book that I gave away. The book was called 14 Prompts. It's still out there. I actually just redid the cover this year and republished it. And I loved that cover and I spent so long thinking about it. And I had my friend who was a photographer, like take the picture for the cover. And I had all these little leaves that I found on this tree that was actually in the book. And I stamped painstakingly, like I bought these stamps from like Michael's or whatever. And I stamped out the title of the book, 14 prompts. And I did it actually on a bunch of leaves. And then I place them very carefully and have my friend take the picture of them in the grass. And then I learned how to like on Photoshop or something, it might've even been paint <laughs> to be honest, but like I painstakingly put my name, you know, in it. And looking back, I know that that cover is not good. And I had it for way too long and it was a terrible cover, but I also really love that cover and it 
brought a lot of memories and it was important to me and I'm glad I made it. And it's interesting like to think about our work and how hard and how much passion and care we put into it and how a lot of times like it's that early work that we care so much about that isn't rewarded, isn't recognized. And it's mm-hmm. it's our later work which, you know, we're a lot better, but we're not putting the the same level of, I don't know, focus and detail care on it that is rewarded. How does that feel to you? Like when you think about that and the amount of time and energy you put into that, do you feel like you wish you had other people had seen what you were trying to do and liked it more? I think there's there's two problems. There's an opportunity cost and there's the the like market cost. So if you have a crappy cover, like you said, if you made it, if you spend a lot of time on it, it's going to be hard for you to recognize that that's the problem. So the more you love it, the more dangerous it can be. And if you spend, like you publish cheap and then you spend five grand on, on marketing and it totally doesn't work because the cover is ugly, that's a huge time cost. And with all that time that you messed around with the cover, you could have just hired it out, you know, and gotten it done and written another book even, depending on how much time you spent. So that's one of the main problems. Something that we just ran through, we had a launch recently, and it was one of those covers. I'm a pretty good designer now, so I spent a lot of time building this floating mage city in the waterfalls. It's a YA epic fantasy. It's a beautiful cover that I spent way too much time on. And we ended up getting rid of it really fast because it wasn't working with the ads. It wasn't converting to the right audience. It's a very YA epic fantasy cover, but it's also an academy book. And I don't know if you know, but fantasy academies are really huge right now. So we were missing the biggest trend, which is academy books. Our book didn't look like the other academy books. So we had to make a bunch of changes really quickly. I think we tested like seven different covers the first week because we were also running ads. So every day we could just put up a new cover and see, you know, was were the ads converting a little bit better. And we're still having trouble with that same cover because the people who like YA Academy books are probably looking for something that's more new adult or a little bit, you know, risque, a little bit more romance. And ours are definitely, you know, young epic fantasy books. So we were getting like a lot of clicks on our ads from people who actually didn't want our book because it wasn't adult enough for them. So it's a it's not just like we definitely had like the first cover I made was the right cover for the book, but it didn't sell as well as another cover that was much faster that just hits you know the right trends because covers in a genre they all kind of look the same. You don't want your cover to totally stick out. It has to look like it fits in in that category and sometimes you can like just make a simple quick good cover like a very basic cover in an hour or two if you spend like dozens of hours on it it's almost a warning sign that you're probably obsessed and you're wasting time you're procrastinating on something else and you may need to just change it all anyway so like you don't want to be too invested yeah that makes sense have you ever had something that you did put in the passion, like you put in the time and you were rewarded for that. Can you think of an example where you had that same level of care and you also 
had the same level of success as your other projects? I don't think so in the way that you mean it. Because like I used to be all enthusiastic, passion, my own projects all the time. Like if it wasn't passionate, you know, there's no sense of doing it. But I was making a lot of stuff that nobody else wanted or cared about. So I was very passionate, but I don't think I was making art. I don't think I was, and I wasn't, you know, I couldn't earn any money from things that nobody wanted. And that was a lesson I had to learn over time. I'm very excited now to begin to focus on some things. It's taken me a couple of years to kind of shift my focus. I love writing fiction, but I also know my audience. So when I write fiction, I, I write a really tight outline and I put in all the things that I know my audience will respond to. And it's not, as, it's not quite as commercial as it could be, but I'm really happy with my quality. But it takes me a while. So at this point, like I'm, I'm passionate about it, but I'm not just doing it for the passion where I'm just writing, you know, the books I want to write because I'm also already thinking about the market. So like my new nonfiction stuff, I'm really excited to share that stuff because I'm I've been researching for like seven years and I also know my audience is going to like it, which makes me more enthusiastic because I know when I finally finish, they're going to like it. It's going to sell. I'm not just wasting my time. I have that confidence because I've been building my audience and I talk to them and I know you know, what they like. And I know that I have the skills to give them a, a really good product that's, that's different because I know the market and I've read other books in my genre. So it's weird. Like when I was younger, it's not quite as fun as it used to be. It's not quite as like, you don't have the fear of like, you know, do I know what I'm doing? There's actually something I saw in Time a couple of years ago. There's an article about creativity and it says something about like, there are two kinds of creativity. There's the one that works with a plan where you know what you're doing and you develop it. And there's the one that's just exploration. Like the, the voyage is the journey. You just like, like to feel the feelings of not knowing where you're going. And they said the research showed that that form of creativity was more satisfying. People liked it more because part of it was the joy and the fear and the terror. Um, my PhD thesis was actually about Paradise Lost. And there's a lot of literature about the character of Satan about to step over into the abyss and go on this journey. And it's this like long moment of hesitation. Do I go forward into the new or do I stay with what's comfortable? Um, and I think that cycle of never knowing, you know, taking the step that's uncomfortable and always taking that step to drift into the unknown and become inspired, that's an important part for, for creativity. That's an important part for like the passion and the joy, but without structure, you may come back from the journey with nothing that other people like. So I'm a big fan of the structure as well. Um, so I don't, I don't feel that like freedom or joy as I used to, but I also now have the confidence to know that I'm working on something that, that has value. Mm. It's a different kind of enthusiasm a little bit. Yeah, no, I totally get that. So we have a similar career trajectory in some ways because when I first got into creativity and, and making things for people, it wasn't through writing. It was through songwriting. I was a musician and I would go and play my songs that I had wrote and I had these like kind of delusions of grandeur like that this was going to be like the most meaningful song someone had ever heard. <laughs> 
And I would go and perform these songs at these open mics with like four people in the audience and no one would care. It was like the worst. It was humiliating. It was so hard. I got really depressed from it because it, I really had a hard time performing and there was so much anxiety around it. And, you know, I, I think back to that version of me, you know, it, I, I went on a journey of like figuring out what people wanted and, and trying to, and especially with writing, you know, trying to like make things that would help people and finding that place in the intersection. And I got really good at it. I mean, I, I started the right practice that has grown a ton. You know, we're going to reach 5 million people this year. We had 200,000 subscribers, like huge amounts of success beyond what I was ever expecting. And in the middle of that, I realized like I had focused so much on trying to write what people wanted that I forgot why I did this in the first place, you know? And I look back to that earlier version of me and I see the naivety, you know, like that I didn't really know what I was doing or how to do it. And there were so many things I'm missing and I don't really want to go back to that place. But there was a heartfeltness about it and a sense that I didn't want to just offer people, you know, something that was perfectly crafted. I wanted to offer people an emotional experience, you know? So when you think about like that younger version of yourself back in the studio in Taiwan or Malta or wherever, painting those abstract paintings that no one understand, like what do you see in that younger version that you are bringing or want to bring into the work you're doing now? Yeah, that's a good question. I think I was too concerned about how other people thought about me. Like I wanted them to think I was smart and cool. So I made these smart and cool paintings. And they were like clever little jokes that nobody really got, pop culture references and stuff. So I, I mean, I was working too hard to please like one person, but not giving them enough of a platform to know the content, the material, like like I said earlier, it's, it's sort of about the story. You have to kind of inject yourself as the creator into it a little bit, just so it gives them some standing ground to kind of know what to think about a piece, because if they don't understand it, then they're not going to read it. So for me, I've, I spent a long time learning plotting and story structure. And I think like you said, it's about the emotional, emotional experience. So a lot of writers think about writing in terms of sentence and craft, and they study for years and they like fine tune all the little the pieces, the words, and the words don't really matter. It's always the story. So you can have a really badly written story that tells really well because it's a good story. It's, it's fast. People like it. People don't remember the words that you use, the words that you've written. And if you have overly flowery, decorative purple prose, it can be a turnoff. A lot of people get lost because the story isn't clear. They don't know what's happening and they'll stop reading. So it's, it's a lot more important to focus on the conflict in every scene, the tension in every scene, the new developments, the story. And for me, because I'm kind of a visual writer, I focus a lot on the description of the scene. So you have to put pictures in people's heads because they won't remember the words. So if you can get them to see a cool scene, and I'll think about like, how do I want my scene to look like 
if it were, were a painting, there'd be a little like pop of red in the middle to draw the eyes. So I'll have something like that in the scene so that when they remember it, I know the picture that they're thinking about. Um, I think that's a really powerful way to write because if you don't give them that, they'll forget the words. They'll only remember the pictures and how you made them feel. So I think you can write really good books quickly without you know worrying so much about the actual writing. Yeah, so I'm reading Shearwater right now, which is kind of a mermaid romantic fantasy book. It's I'm really enjoying it. And when you think back about that book, like, is there a scene in there that you can point to and say, like, this is the painting that I was trying to create, you know, that's very visual? Yes, but not as much as one of my other books, which is Scarlet Thread, that sells really well. And in that one, she's very, very goth. She wears all black all the time. Like, she's poor, so she hand makes her own clothes. But she has this bright chunk of colorful Legos that she wears around her neck. And it's a symbol of she's kind of responsible for her brother's death when she was younger. And that's like a little memento of the dead brother that she feels guilty for. And later in the book, to this is kind of like a mythical fantasy. And to kind of get through the magic door, she has to sacrifice something that's important to her. So she has to give up that reminder of the brother that she feels responsible for to move forward through the portal and save the world. So that kind of thing where you have one colorful symbol that's representative of the chief conflict mm. in your story. Yeah. I don't know. It was, I would like eventually you can like hire people to make character cards and to make art for, for things. I would actually like to, you know, get illustrations made for my novels so that, you know, maybe five good black and white illustrations to hit those pivotal scenes even a little bit harder. I think that would be fun. Yeah, that is cool. How did you come up with that character in Scarlet Thread? I write young adult fantasy and it can almost be, it depends who your market is, but I've seen some that's almost over the top cliche. So you kind of make like the coolest character right now. Usually it's like they have pink or purple hair. Maybe they wear fingerless gloves, the like leather jacket or jean jacket. I don't know, like over the top cool characters, they, to make them sympathetic, this is just basic fiction writing, but to make them sympathetic, you have them like in an orphanage or they lost their parents or they have a little brother or sister to take care of or an elderly neighbor, someone they take care of. They have a job they hate that, you know, they, they're broke. You, you, you set up the scene. This is common fiction stuff, but you set up like the, the ordinary world and then something happens and then, you know, things get better. But they start off as like a really cool, almost in some young adult, it's almost like anime, the descriptions. Like it's just so too much kind of, but it's a very clear characterization and description. Is that how you came up with that character? You were thinking about how to create the coolest character? Pretty much, but she's also really tied to death. She has the power to cut the strings of fate. So she has, she's tied to like the three sisters of fate. So she, in the end, becomes responsible for killing Zeus and saving the world. It's all based on Greek mythology. That was the other problem with my earlier fiction is I studied mythology. I love it. So I put in so much historical reference and history and mythology that's a little overwhelming. And, and I worked kind of too hard to make sure all the details were right. 
with newer fantasies, I can just make it up and it saves so much time. But that one, because she's kind of tied to death and like there's a big scene in, in the cemetery, that's just kind of her style, like raven feathers and black and it's kind of a cool thing. But it also is to contrast, you know, she's that way because of what happened earlier with her brother that she has that reminder of her past where she was like, like a normal person. Wow. So do you think that there is a lesson that people can take from her story? I mean, you mentioned this kind of burden and, and guilt that she's carrying around from her brother. If someone were to read that and take a personal lesson away from for their own life, what would it be? Yeah, I'll try to give an example, which I've been thinking about a lot recently. One of my problems, I think, is that I say yes to a lot of projects. I want to help everybody. So when people ask for help or feedback, I'm usually very generous with my time. But then I over, you know, invest myself in everything. I really need to start being more protective of my own time and using it to focus on the projects. I actually like the projects that will take your life in the direction you want to go, or you want to be known for. I need to be a little more decisive with, I'm going to use my time for me instead of just for other people. So in the book, she has this problem. One of the main like dramatic twists is that Zeus has a, he, he finds a way to, save her lover's life. He, she saves her lover's life by making a deal with Zeus, but then Zeus is tied to her mm. lover, basically. So in the end, if she kills Zeus, her lover will die also. So she has all these strings. And I don't want to say, like, don't care about other people or don't help other people. But at some point, if you are tied to too mm. many other things, yeah. if you're giving all your time and energy to other people's projects and you can't like as much as it hurts to cut those strings and say no to people you really have to choose there was something else i was reading about see like the difference between ceos and business owners or creatives was ceos just they make those kind of decisions and just say this is where we want to go we have to not do all this other stuff i think that's been a big challenge for me that i always just want to do everything and i have to really try to find ways to limit all the stuff I'm doing so I can really focus on the few things that I know I'm better at than anybody else. If I can just like focus my time on those few things. And I do love writing fiction. I, I only really want to be writing fiction or like, like I said, this, this like in-depth research, creative nonfiction stuff that, you know, amuses me. So I'm happy to write it as well. Anyway, so I think that's probably a lesson that I like from that book. Yeah. You have to cut the thread. All right. So last question. Who is your favorite character from any book or film ever? Not Harry Potter because he's kind of a dunce. <laughs> I Harry Those are fighting words, man. He's, he never does anything. He's always like waiting to the last moment and then it's too late. He never talks to anybody and his friends have to like go him into action He's kind of just like, he gets lucky every time. Wow. I'm a big fan. I love the books as a series. I think my master's is mostly in Harry Potter. But yeah, Harry is not a great character. Man, you're going to get hate mail after of that. Old, huh? Wow. I probably will. <laughs> I'll bet Harry Potter heads will agree with me. But also, I found out recently I'm Ravenclaw. 
of Me the courthouses, which is the analytical yeah. void conflict at all costs, sit down and talk through your shit so that, you know, the, you know, you don't have to fight each other. I figured all that out and I think it helps me to be comfortable with my identity a Great. little bit, which was nice. nice. I always thought I was Lutheran before. I could see it go either way. Because I would but glad to have you in my house. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, now that I know where I, where I fit, I feel kind of a relief. That's great. Cool. Yeah. Otherwise, I think I'm just going to stick with anti-Harry Potter. Ahab in... Wow. Well, how come? Because I kind of always find the villains are my heroes because the villains are usually the ones who are very analytic and they make those tough decisions. It's actually kind of the rape, I feel, who would be the real villains in history. In Moby Dick, Captain Ahab is just trying to go kill the whale. He's a whale killer. He's a whale hunter. That's what he does. He just wants to kill the whale. All the other characters in the book are superstitious about this one white whale because no one's ever caught it before and they think it's, it's a ghost or it's a supernatural demon or something like that. So they're all afraid to do this thing. Captain Ahab just uses science, he uses a compass. Everyone's really afraid of like compasses and technology. He breaks the compass because he knows how to put it back together again. He's very competent in his skills. In the end, like the, the whale kills him in the end. And the, the, the moral of the story is supposed to be, you know, don't push against walls if they're too difficult. Like there are some places where man was not meant to tread, which is a message I don't really believe in. So for me, he's kind of like, he's made out to be the villain of that story, but it was written in a very conservative time. And actually Moby Dick was really controversial because when you read it, you're kind of confused about who the mm. hero is and what the actual, you, you feel angst, mm. which is, I think one of the powerful things of the novel is that you read it and you feel like not really sure what to do this with this, but it makes me really uncomfortable. And it was really heavily based on Paradise Law. So I kind of traced that whole thread through anti-heroes in literature. Um, but yeah, I'm a strong fan of, of Moby Dick. He almost directly quotes Paradise Lost a few times, which is basically just, he has an attitude of defiance of like when there are walls in your place, like when you have goals, you have to push through the walls and, you know, overcome obstacles. It's become a really, like almost cliche. I think a lot of people believe that now, but at one time it was very controversial to say you should be in, in control of your own destiny. There's been this huge shift in the last 300 years. So I love that history, but I feel like a lot of the older villains of literature should be contemporary heroes. So that's kind of a direction totally. I focus my attention wow. on. I have so many more questions, but we have to wrap up. Thank you so much for your time, Derek. This has been so much fun and, and good luck with all the things you're working on. It's always fun to see what you're creating and I can't wait to see what you come up with next. Great. Happy to talk to you again in the future. Thanks. All right, let's get into our character study segment of the show. This is where we ask what we can learn from Derek's story and apply to our own lives as we try to live a better story. All right, Alice, what was your takeaway? So I found it fascinating that he chose Ahab and villains in general as his favorite characters. I think he even said that villains are his heroes, which I think is just really fascinating. One, 
slight side note, I have heard it said that villains are the ones who really drive a story. We think that it's the protagonist who's driving the story, but really it's the goal of the villain that creates the disruption that the protagonist is responding to, honestly. And if you have a really fascinating protagonist, but you don't have a strong villain with a clear goal who's moving things along, the story won't go anywhere because there's nothing for the protagonist to go up against. So he loves villains for having purpose, for having goals, for pushing through walls and overcoming obstacles for having this belief that you should be in control of your own destiny. And that made me think of one of my friends who is an INTJ on the Myers-Briggs personality test. And if you look at all the 16 personality types and you lay them out on a grid and then you map out different stories and see which characters go with which personality types, there was a point when she got kind of frustrated because you look at Harry Potter and you look at Lord of the Rings and all these other stories and the INTJ is always the villain. And she was like, I don't want to be a villain in the world. Like, this is, are these the only characters that I am supposed to relate to? But I find it really fascinating that Derek really likes the villains because that makes me think of this character who's got a really clear, thoughtful, intellectual, knowledgeable, skilled drive to accomplish something. And I think that we heard a lot of that in his interview. And especially how he has developed the craft and the skill to navigate this creative space with a lot of intentionality and to find exactly the amount of time spent versus skill invested to maximize return on investment, to find out exactly how long it takes to produce a cover that really works, to know when to stop a project, to know how to design a project for maximum impact. I think that that kind of almost villainy is something that I heard a lot in his interview and I thought it was really interesting. Yeah, what I appreciate is Derek's honesty, right? So he, you know, I think a lot of artists and writers would just say, yeah, there's something magical about storytelling and about creating story. And and it comes from this really mysterious place. And the reality is, is that might be true plenty of times, but there are always times when the artist and the writer is very calculating and they are intentionally trying to create something and use all of their skill and all the craft that they've learned over years to create some kind of emotional response in the reader. And instead of like saying, oh, it's just a mystery, Derek is really honest about it and says, well, it's not a mystery. This is how it actually works. So pay attention to that. And I think that's great. I mean, I think we should be more honest. I got into a Twitter war one time. Not quite a war. I, I shouldn't say a war. <laughs> Twitter battle, Twitter skirmish. I mean, I lost the war in one <laughs> big foul swoop because the I got into a war with J.K. Rowling, actually. Oh, yeah. No, you, yes. <laughs> yeah, where she was talking about writing as this magical thing, when in reality, like in her earlier career, she had talked very carefully about the craft and about how she learned to create character and plot and scenes. And, you know, now later on in her career, she has so internalized those things 
that she doesn't even think about it anymore. And it's all magical again. And I think that's fine. I'm, I love JK Rowling. I don't want to like start a war with her because one, I'd lose and two, because she's so great. But I do think it's a little bit disingenuous. There is something that it's like, you know, it's more than just magic. There is craft involved. And I appreciate Derek's focus on the craft. Absolutely. And like all those qualities of villains, having purpose, having goals, pushing through walls, having the craft, believing that you can be in control of your destiny and your trajectory. Those are not bad things. Those are good things. So hopefully Derek is using his villainy for good. (laughs) We'll never know. Or maybe we will. I don't know. (laughs) What was your takeaway? Yeah, my takeaway was that tension between the craft and passion. And I, you know, I thought it was so interesting how he talked about kind of this earlier version of himself that was so focused on the art, so focused on just being a real pure artist who didn't care about what other people thought and just focused on creating weird work that maybe no one got. And then how he kind of changed that and really focused in on making stuff for other people. And I I think that's an admirable thing to focus on serving your audience. It's something I tried to do. And, you know, how much he learned about how to do that and how to actually create that emotional connection. And for me, like, I think I come a little bit different. I come out a little bit different on the side of the tension. You know, when I think about the earlier version of myself who also was very focused on kind of that emotional experience and being a writer and this kind of magical thing that I was trying to create, I see that person and I think, yeah, you are kind of naive and you don't really know what you're doing, but you also have access to something that now that I am experienced and I know what I'm doing and have a, you know, sense of the craft, I know how it works. I don't have full access to that anymore. And I need to learn from you actually younger version of myself, how to have that kind of childlikeness about storytelling and what it's all about. So I see a ton of value in that. And I don't know if Derek would see value in that earlier version of himself. Yeah, I think that's a really hard tension to walk. And it's hard to realize that at different points. It's a perspective shift that's just, I think, on a continuum of going back and forth, up and down throughout your journey. So it was interesting to hear from him about his perspective now and where he is now and how he approaches his writing. Cool. All right. So that's your homework for this week, if you're up for it. I want you to think about an earlier version of yourself who doesn't have the experience that you have now Maybe they're not as good at relationship. Maybe they're not as good at their job, whatever it is. Think about that earlier version of yourself and also think about what you could learn from that person. Like if you were to learn one lesson from that earlier version of yourself, what would it be? Let us know how it goes at charactertestshow at gmail.com. Thanks to Pictures of the Floating World for our theme music 
Don't forget to go to charactertestshow.com episode six for your free prize. And last thing, we still need your help making our story better. There's one thing that you can do that will take two minutes of your time, but will really change our lives. I'm serious. It's going to change my life. Completely. Totally different. It'll be like a new life. So go to your podcast player. Maybe it's iTunes. Maybe it's Spotify. Maybe it's Stitcher. Find whatever button you need to leave a review. Then write a review. It can be as short as one sentence and click submit. It's going to take you two minutes, but your review will change my life and Alice's life. I think. So much. Yeah. So just do it. Thanks. All right. Have a good week. Bye.